Hey folks, welcome into Ont Waveland. It's the Cubs podcast here at The Athletic. I am Brett Taylor, joined by Patrick Mooney. We are here to talk the... Oh gosh, I should have come up with a word to describe the end of the first half for the Cubs. The um, It's like when you, you have an old cow that is sickly and you know that it's time uh, and you, you hope that as you put that cow out of its misery, you can at least get some delicious meat from the terrible, uh, you know, process that led to its demise. Uh, I think that's what this year is. I, dude, I just came up with that on do the Do you live fly. on a farm or something like that? that. You do <laughs> lots of uh, I, agricultural you metaphors. Know, I, like, uh, yeah. I like beef. Okay, you know, it's okay. on my mind from time this to time. It's like a where's the beef type thing about the Cubs. This is, that's what this year season. is. Where's yeah. the beef? Okay. Oh, you can, you can, you can borrow that if you want. You can, uh, so we'll talk about that in a moment, but I think we'll, we'll start things off with the draft. Obviously that's the big, it's not only the big story in the Cubs world right now. I mean, it's, it's the, the big thing in baseball. I, they call it, uh, it was at the Cubs front office that called it like their Super Bowl. Um, yeah, that was, uh, I, I believe it was a Jason McLeod line or a Theo line way back kind of at the beginning of the last rebuild, um, when there was this similar to now, like that renewed focus on scouting and development and what would be uh coming next well not unlike that time the cubs have their first had their first top 10 pick since the days of kyle schwarber and ian happ 2014-2015 um and to the surprise of many they went with a college pitcher uh cade horton from oklahoma with pick seven overall um We'll get into some specifics in a moment, but just generally speaking, one of the hallmarks of this draft was that uh, it was thought to feature uh, the the longest stretch of position players taken at the top, perhaps in draft history, because the the pitching crop had been thinned so badly by injuries. Um, the high school pitching pool was is very deep, but not like top of the first round deep, and uh, yet. Within the first seven picks, there were actually two pitchers taken. The Rangers really shocking everyone, taking Kumar Rocker at pick three. And then the Cubs with Cade Horton at seven. Uh, I'm curious to get your, you know, let, let's talk immediate reaction, which is, I think you're a lot like me. Try to be tempered about it because, like, we're not draft experts and we don't pretend to be. Um and then you sort of distill whatever information you can get after that, and you have a sort of day after reaction. So, what were kind of your thoughts in the moment? And then, as you have uh, gleaned more information about Horton, you know, how, how are you thinking about that pick? Yeah, I'm with you, Brad. I mean, even the people who are making these picks don't know what's going to happen. Like, their entire professional careers are built around this, and they're only making educated guesses, too. And I think what you and I like to do is kind of go off like recent history or kind of, you know, draft philosophies within the organization and trying to tie it together. What's going on at the major league level. And, you know, any one individual pick, like I, I think, you know, it's, it's even hard to rip like the picks the Cubs made two years ago. Like that's how long uh, this process can be. And, and, you know, we're seeing it now of a guy like Ian Happ, you know, finally making that leap, a guy who was drafted in, in 2015 or what, you know, Nico Horner was viewed as a reach, right? In 2018 of, you know, and he is now a viable major league 
shortstop and you know an extremely valuable piece going forward not to mention um you're just a great guy to have in the clubhouse and a potential leader of this next group so i was thrown for a loop with the the pitching uh angle to this uh for what you had said and you know i also think it's hard to like put a stamp on exactly what the cubs are doing and i guess that could be taken as a criticism in some ways of like what is what's the Cubs identity right now I don't really like know but there's been changes behind the scenes there's been uh you know leadership turnover at the the leadership level and it's just kind of hard to we all knew years ago the Cubs are going to take a college hitter with that pick right I mean that was and those guys all turned out really 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 well and we'll see if Cade Horton uh can match that on the pitching side it would probably be pretty hard but uh you know at the same time they got to take some big swings the cubs have enough like kind of four inning five inning starters and like you know interesting enough relievers for the seventh and eighth inning like this was their um you know like i said a a big swing on a, a big talent who does not have a very long track record and that had been with the prior group you know a big thing of you know we saw ian happ on the cape or you know we you know, <clears throat> I've been at every single Chris Bryant game and talked to everyone all around him. And this was a little different. This is a guy who really popped and that even Dan Cantrobitz kind of admitted, like, if this draft had happened in June, I think there's any way the Cubs would have taken him at that pick, maybe in the second round or, or today on day two of the draft. Yeah, I think you touched on a lot of what in the immediate reaction felt so dissonant about this pick to a lot of fans. And that's not a criticism. Uh, it is to say that in recent years past, we are very used to a Cubs, particularly when picking high, we're used to a Cubs front office and scouting group that uh, values certainty, uh, floor, and experienced positional prospects. I mean, that's that's what we have seen. And in this pick, the Cubs went very inexperienced, very limited track record, very uh, high risk, very high upside pitcher. And it's just not something we've seen. Even last year when the Cubs went with the pitcher in the first round, Jordan Wicks, he was viewed as a pretty high floor guy, um, pretty safe as far as any pitching pitch, any pitching pick can be. And so it was, uh, I think it, that's why it takes a lot of time to sort of step back and be like, okay, I sort of get, We'll, we'll talk about the bonus pool implications of this in a moment, because that is a, a critical part of this too. But, you know, I step back and look at this pick and I realize it's not like I don't want the Cubs to take the big swings. Sometimes you, sometimes you have to take the big risky pick in order to land that front of the rotation type starter. Because uh, like you said, uh, almost in the reverse, you know, if this draft is a month ago, Horton doesn't go this high. So that means he rose this far, this fast, which means if the draft were a month from now, and let's say their season was extended, and it's like, oh, then everybody's got him in the top 10. I'm not, I'm not saying that would have played out that way. I'm just saying it's sort of like that's how you have to look at this if you're going to take the chance. You know, that that 10% shot on a front of the rotation ace instead of a 30% shot at a probably pretty good uh, position player at the big league level. You know, it's you're 
how do you choose between those two? Philosophically, I don't know. I can be sold that it's like this is a farm system that's extraordinarily deep. Uh, some impact talent, but maybe not a ton of like really, really top impact talent. Maybe that's the situation where you take a big swing on a guy who has a big bust risk, but also has the possibility of being a, a, a really, really elite pitching talent. And to that point, I wanted to say, well, let me let me mention then, and then I'll circle back to a bigger picture point on both of these picks. So um, as we kind of thought in the moment, drafts playing out, it's like, okay, so big upside play in Horton at seven, but his floor in the draft was seen as more like in the 15 to 20 range, which usually means that a guy has had a conversation with the organization and is willing to take a signing bonus under the slot for his pick. And because you are limited to a bonus pool in the draft, uh, you do have to think about, okay, how much we spend on this pick will impact who we can take later. And we saw that manifesting immediately with the Cubs second round pick in Jackson Ferris, one of the top high school pitchers in the draft who was expected to command first round money. And if you're getting him at pick 47, you're presumably ready to pay a really aggressive signing bonus. And so you have to kind of look at these picks in tandem with each other because they do work together. And once that played out, I started thinking about, you know, one of the things uh, that the Cubs have done the last couple of years uh, in terms of the elevation of Craig Breslow, in terms of bringing in Carter Hawkins, uh, in terms of overhauling the player development infrastructure is they have decided that they are very good now at developing pitchers. And I like the way you put that they have decided. Well, and, and <laughs> because I don't there's mean no that, evidence yeah. of that. <laughs> and I don't mean it in a pejorative way yet. Right. Um, because as we've talked about before, you, you sort of can't know yet. Um, I think people could point to Justin Steele and Keegan Thompson and be like, see, these were guys who were already here, but now they're taking bigger steps forward. Okay, maybe. Um, we'll see. I think there are some, you know, if you follow uh, Kyle Body of, of Driveline on Twitter, he has some sort of proprietary metrics for evaluating farm systems and has indicated that the Cubs are among the organizations who have taken steps forward on the pitching side for whatever that's worth. And I remember, I think it was either you and Sahadev or just Sahadev at the end of last year had talked about some of the Cubs internal metrics where they're like, Oh, we have, you know, improved substantially in velocity and stuff and whatever. That's really all we have because we haven't necessarily seen huge breakouts from individual prospects where it's like been transformative. A guy that was like sort of a afterthought has become a superstar prospect. We haven't seen that yet. So, yes, that is why I phrase it that way. The Cubs believe themselves now to be a, a very good pitching development organization. We still need to see that, but I suppose against that backdrop, it makes the picks all the more understandable because in the draft, you're not just taking the best talent you can get. You're taking the best talent that you think you can mold in the coming years uh, because it sort of doesn't matter how good they are right now. It matters how good they are in three and four years. And... Maybe the Cubs will be right. Like, that's the key. You got to be right about it. Like, I can explain <laughs> the picks today, but you still have to be right about it in, in the years down the road. Yeah, I've gone back and forth on this because, like, this is not all about, like, Kate Horton, who, you know, was a star quarterback in high school, could have played football at 
Oklahoma. Uh, as you point out, Brett, this is a, a guy who was a shortstop and a third baseman for a college world series program. Like he's super athletic. He's got a ton going for him. You can, you know, try to project that athleticism uh, in terms of being able to repeat a delivery and, um, you know, all that stuff. He checks a ton of boxes. Um, but like, if the Cubs pitching infrastructure is so great, like why is their team so bad? And, you know, we can look back at these, you know, different forks in the roads and the paths that they've taken, but, uh, you know, we don't know if this is going to work and, you know, it didn't work last time and the Cubs still won the world series. So like it's, there are lots of different kind of ways to go about this. I I just think the Cubs can't get too much credit of like, you know, wanting to, you know, let's get this guy in the pitch lab and like, let's see what happens. It's like, well, this guy was a top 10 pick. Like he, he better be really, really good. And but at the same time, like there, when the Cubs look back on this previous decade, you know, you know, I had someone tell me like, you know, you can't blame the development system or you have to look at the development system in terms of like, what were the raw materials we were giving them? This is someone from the scouting side. So, you know, there's a chicken or the egg type element of this too, of, you know, the Cubs were really conservative and had these really kind of narrow criteria for who they would want to pick uh, in the draft. And, you know, for the most part, that didn't work. And so here, I mean, this is definitely different. And then we'll see, like you said, if they're right. Like five years from now, (laughs) 10 years from now. So to maybe put a pin in the point that you're making, Mooney, if – if I can try to sew it up a bit, one thing I would say is, um, and again, we're not going to know for so long, like you said, but uh, in the hiring of Carter Hawkins, I remember a lot of the discourse around, you know, not just why him, but, you know, what does he bring to the organization? I remember vividly uh, him talking about the success that the then Indians, now Guardians had in developing pitching. And a lot of it was about they had a really strong synergy between the scouting side and the development side as it related to who they took in the draft. You know, they sort of specifically knew before they were making picks like, oh, this is a guy we can work with. And, you know, it's sort of there was just a perfect harmony between those sides. And you're the way you discussed that made me think of that because we don't know that that was always the case with the Cubs in the years past. Um, and it is certainly something they hope they have brought to bear over the last couple of years and in the years ahead, certainly with these picks. Um, we're recording this now sort of midday on Monday, which means that rounds three through 10 of the draft will go later today, which completes the bonus pool portion. Um, and then rounds 11 through 20 will go tomorrow. And I don't think anything that happens will fundamentally alter the way we think about this draft, not because the top two picks are the only ones that matter, but because I think we now have a sense uh, from a, again, a bonus pool side, what the Cubs are going to be able to do. They didn't necessarily, between the two picks at the top, save a ton, I don't suspect. 
that they can take any more like enormous swings, but we'll see. I think you, now it's just a, a scouting competition for them and you hope they land some guys um, who down the road become uh, contributors. Uh, so we'll leave that there. Uh, obviously the first half concluded for the Cubs. They ended the losing streak. They did not reach another double digit losing streak. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I almost so saw close. In, what was it? Like I know. I almost saw away, in something like that. David Robertson's face as he completed the save. <laughs> yes. Like it almost. I'm. I'm reading obviously my reaction into his, but it looked like the face of like, oh, thank God, it's not another ten games. It was on um, the. It was on the video board that I was watching. That I'm assuming that I don't know if that's what was on the game broadcast, but on the video board, you know, you just saw him and Wilson just kind of look at each other, and we can't really convey it. Uh, <laughs> over podcast, we're zooming right now, but it was that exact look of like, whew, like he knew yeah. they knew they're, they're feeling it, you know? Um, so, you know, the, that win perhaps, um, lets them feel a little better over this break and into the recharge. And, but as we know from the outside, it doesn't really change anything as far as what the first half was, which is, um, disappointing even by the standard of uh, expectations that we didn't think they were likely to be very good in the first half. Um, But they did not even approach passable. And they will now from here vie for one of the five worst records uh, in baseball. And, um, you know, as it relates to this draft conversation, they'll be uh, high up in the lottery because the lottery kicks in after this year. And I think, um, you know, that 10 game stretch to finish the first half, uh, playing against the Dodgers for four in LA playing the Orioles who were then on their own double digit winning streak and then closing with the Mets, uh, as we discussed in the last pod, I think the whole thing just, it was almost a perfect reminder of where things stand right now with the Cubs um, to face sort of two behemoth teams in the National League that are spending aggressively, but that have also developed really well, that are just have done a lot of the things that the Cubs want to do going forward. And then also facing an Orioles team that is a reminder of where the Cubs were, which is you tank badly for several years and then you build up so much talent that you can start to turn a corner on the strength of that talent internally. And I, I don't know. The Cubs are somewhere in the middle of those right now. I think I, I don't expect while, while we have gone to great lengths to say that this is a rebuild right now, even as the Cubs are not saying that I don't think they plan to, or necessarily want to go to the same depths that this Orioles group has um, in the year in this year and the years ahead. I also you know, remain unconvinced that they will ever reach the level of what the Dodgers and Mets are right now in terms of the way they use their resources. And um, maybe that's unfair because the Dodgers have that absurd TV deal and the Mets have uh, the richest owner in baseball. But the Cubs are supposed to be in that class. And I, as I watch these two organizations beat up on the Cubs this week, I'm just reminded of how far they have to go. And um, with all appropriate love and respect to the players, um, as David Ross pointed out, who have been working really hard. And you do, it it is true that you don't sense any like give up 
in that where it's like, okay, we suck. And this year is about us sucking. And so whatever, no, I still see like Christopher Morrell hitting, you know, base it up the middle in the game. And the Cubs are losing and he's losing his mind at first base. Cause he drove in a run and he wants to pump up his guys. Um, I, I, I dig that. And I think that'll matter in the years ahead. Um, but I thought the, you know, and you wrote about this, uh, at the athletic Mooney, David Ross's comment, where on the one hand, he was talking about the fight in his players, uh, and appreciating that, you know, he mentioned it was not the thrust of his comment, but it just slipped in there. He mentioned, you know, I like the way we're competing, you know, against a $300 million team. And you just never hear a manager talk about payroll like that. Like it just, it just doesn't enter in. And while I don't think some people have said this, but I don't quite think he was intending it as a barb toward the front office no. or ownership, like that we're not spending enough. Instead, I thought of it more as a, it, it does enter into his mind that there is a resource difference that he's working with and they're working with. And um, we'll see what happens in the future on that front. But, you know, I thought it was a, a very fair point. I mean, that was one of those immediately star that quote for the year in quotes because it summed up like the entire season. And I didn't ask Ross directly for his state of mind, but I have no doubt that it was like an accidental slip. I mean, to rewind, I mean, this was his third media briefing of the day, not even including what he does with uh, whatever the radio or, or TV cruise um two long extra inning games uh and the question itself from uh the great mark gonzalez who's covered baseball forever it was just kind of teeing up the idea of you know getting a win before heading to the break so you don't have a 10 game losing streak hanging over you for the rest of this week and you know ross was saying how proud proud he was of these guys that they're playing their asses off against a first place team with a $300 million payroll. And like you're saying, Brett, managers almost always say, you know, our job is to win with what we have and some version of that. And Ross is particularly in these interview rooms with the cameras rolling nonstop. He is very careful um, and is aware that, you know, I think most of these pre and post games are like, entirely recorded and broadcast on TV, which is not really fair to him, to be honest, and is not really like productive or conducive to like conveying um, certain ideas to Cubs fans and Cubs customers. But um, it just kind of slipped and, you know, it was not um, a calculated thing from my perspective at all. I think Ross really goes out of his way to not take shots at people and to measure his answers very carefully. But like, that's, you know, from our perspective, that's why you listen. That's why you're there every day is to see like, what's the, you know, they can give you this, 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 and this. And all of a sudden <laughs> there's just one fragment of a sentence and one answer is like, Oh, like that's, was and it's so obvious too you know it's like when you lose these games you need that difference maker the playmaker who can get you the hit who can make the big pitch like that's i mean everyone knows this and that um why the mets are in 
good position, why the Dodgers are in a good position. You know, money helps with that, the depth and being able to weather um, the storms that always happen. And, and the Cubs were built as this kind of threadbare operation to where there was a, like we've talked about since spring training, this very narrow path to where they could be relevant after the trade deadline. And that blew up in what, like late April? <laughs> I mean, yeah, two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, I think it was a wholly appropriate, even if, even if not what he was intending to talk about in that moment, I found it to be a wholly appropriate comment in relation to this 10 day stretch uh, for the reasons that I said, because of the teams, the Cubs were playing and um, because of the, of a first half that, you know, I think it's also got to be hard when you know your team is genuinely more talented than being like tied for the third worst team in baseball. I, I do believe that. Um, but also knowing you probably don't have the talent mix, even if you were fully healthy, to be a competitive team right now. You know, he's, he's seen enough games with this group to know okay, here's what we have, here's what we don't have. And he's been around long enough. And I, I think he knows. Um, and so it's probably hard to be in that situation where you feel like you could be a lot better than you are. You've had some bad luck. Um, little known fact, uh, by base runs, which is a calculation that Fangraphs does uh, of all underlying performance and sort of normalizes it, neutralizes the flukiness of like, when you're playing this team or you get to face this pitcher instead of this pitcher, all that kind of stuff filters it out. Uh, the Cubs have been six games worse than they should be. Same exact underlying performance. You know, just if it was less, if they, the randomness fell differently. And it kind of, you can see some of it in the fact that they're three and 11 in extra inning games. Yes, some of that's on them, but some of that I'm going to tell you as disappointing as it may be, some of that's just random fluky stuff when, you, when you're that close in games and you lose that many of them. Um, so anyway, to circle to the point, which is that uh, it's something we've said a lot this year, which is that this is not a good Cubs team, but they've also been very injured and they've also been unlucky. And I think it's probably frustrating and hard for a manager, even one who is can be a realist about his roster, to be like, okay, yes, I'm not saying we're really good, but my guys are trying really hard and they are talented and we should be better than this. Um, that's probably a hard point to make. And it's probably especially hard to make when you're facing teams that are just killing it this year. And they are doing so in part on the strength of resources that you don't have available to you. Um, so yeah, I thought that was a good unintentional, but very uh, appropriate wrap to the first half, uh, especially in advance of the trade deadline. And so that's going to be, um, you know, a continued focus for the next couple of weeks after, especially after the draft wraps, uh, because you're reminded draft used to be early June and that would give front offices an opportunity to flip the switch into trade mode pretty early on um, relative to now, which is, you know, they're deeply, deeply, into draft mode right now and they have to have been for the last couple of weeks because there's just if you want to do it well if you want to win your super bowl it takes a lot of time and effort and manpower so when the draft wraps um i think we're going to see a lot more 
activity on the trade front. And the Cubs will have to figure out how to maximize what they can do. So we'll be into that uh, later this week. Uh, we'll be back at you on Thursday. Draft will be in the rear view, though we'll we'll wrap it for you some more. And then we'll look ahead toward the trade deadline because that's, frankly, that's going to be the, the big story for the next couple of weeks for the Cubs. Uh, I'm Brett Taylor. Get my stuff at Bleacher Nation. That's Patrick Mooney. Get his at The Athletic. This is On to Waveland. It's the Cubs podcast here at The Athletic. And we appreciate you listening very much. Uh, look forward to the next... 28 no 18 rounds of the draft and uh you know we'll see you on the interwebs and talk to you on thursday take care all